Uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 20, zeroing in on the uh, Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Stop there. Uh, the law of God is given to a redeemed people. It's not so that they might be redeemed. It's because they were already redeemed. They are not to be saved by the keeping of the law. They have been saved and therefore are called to keep the law as an expression of the will of their father and of the life that he would have uh, them lead. Uh, I am the, law, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Joshua, and Moses is the God alone whom they are to serve and worship, rely upon, uh, call upon. Uh, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above and so on. Uh, so this is how that God is to be uh, worshipped and served. And it's, it's, uh, not, he's not to be worshipped and served through any kind of visual representation. Uh, the broader principle being He's only to be worshipped in the way that he has authorized. We must go to his word to learn the, the worship that is pleasing to him. Uh, then the uh, third of the commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold, hold him guiltless who takes your, his name in vain. Uh, that is, we're not to worship God mechanically, superficially, uh, super, uh, superstitiously, frivolously, insincerely, manipulatively, we're not, to use an, we're not to use his name in an empty kind of way, uh, but uh, we are to worship him with spiritual integrity and from uh, the heart. And as we've looked at then the positive, and by the way, I'm reviewing this because it's been two months since we last looked at the Ten Commandments, so I'm assuming that we needed a bit of a review. So... Um, uh, so it, it positively uh, applied the third commandment, we said that, uh, that God is to be served and worshipped spiritually, and now we want to go further and say that he is to be served and worshipped reverently. When we, rely, when we rely upon him, call upon him, uh, we're not to do so disrespectfully or carelessly, but with respect and deference to him as God. Uh, so what, what does that mean? Well, it means that when we serve God, worship God, call upon God, the pervasive mood, uh, the pervasive tone of that service is to be one of reverence. Hebrews 12, 28, we're to worship him with reverence and awe. Uh, Jesus taught us to pray, uh, Matthew 6, 9, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Calling upon him with a sense of the holiness, the sacredness, of his name. The English Standard Version note on that verse interprets hallowed as meaning treat with reverence. So that there ought to always be a serious and substantial mood, a solid, sober, reverential tone in our worship. There is a problem, though, in exactly understanding what it means to be reverence. I think, I think reverence is often treated today like uh, the subject of beauty. And so beauty, it is said, I don't believe it, but it is said, is in the eye of the beholder. And so people make of beauty whatever they want to make. 
I don't think that works. I think that truth and righteousness and beauty are all ultimately anchored in the nature of God. And so there are those things that are not beautiful. There are things that are ugly. And so beauty is not merely in the eye of the beholder. It's, it's not relative. There are absolutes of beauty, just like there are absolutes of truth and righteousness. Uh, all right, the same is true of reverence. We, just can't, we can't just pour into that word whatever we want it, uh, and make it, make it mean whatever we want it to mean. Reverence for you is not the same as reverence for me. That sort of relativism about reverence. Now, I bring that up because I hear it all the time. We are being reverent and uh, services of worship to me and approaches to serving God to me seem to be very irreverent. Um, they, they are not um, engendering in those who are worship a, a, a sense of the greatness and the, of the glory of, of God. Uh, so I, I want to see if we can establish a case for what is meant by reverence by looking at, at uh, various uh, texts and, and tangential texts that uh, use uh, that, that draw in other, other elements of what it means to worship God and what they imply about how he is uh, to be served and worshiped. So number one, I would say the Bible indicates that when we worship God, we are to worship him carefully. Uh, so turn over in your Bibles to a couple of different passages. One, Ecclesiastes 5.1. Ecclesiastes 5.1. Uh, there the, the writer says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps. You don't just walk in. You just don't burst into his presence. You don't, you don't go there uh, absent-mindedly or carelessly or um, frivolously. No, when you, you guard your steps. You go in there carefully. You take care about the way that you go into the house of God. This, this is not just like walking into your neighbor's house or some other building or some other venue. No, you're going into the house of God. So when you go in there, guard your steps. Go in carefully. You're going into the presence of, of God. Guard your steps. Go there with care, with consideration, with forethought about what you are doing and who you are approaching and who you are dealing with. Guard your steps. Don't just rush into his presence. If you had an audience with the president or, or an audience with a judge, you know, there was a judge here in town. He happened to be a member of our church. You went into his presence. You were the lawyer representing someone, and you went into uh, his chambers or into his courtroom, and you didn't have a coat and tie on. He'd throw you out. Right out of his He'd throw you out and throw your case out and start over again. You, you were to show a certain respect and deference to him as a, a judge. And, and so that, this, is what, uh, this is what Ecclesiastes is getting at. You're, you're going into the audience of, of the, somebody of the stature, far beyond the stature of a judge or the president of the United States. You wouldn't go in there unguarded. You'd have a certain plan about what you were going to wear and what, how you were going to uh, act. There would be some thought and preparation that was put into it. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.2, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. I mean, the, the point is unmistakable, isn't it? Don't be rash with your mouth, hasty to utter a word. You be careful about what you say. You can, uh, give, give, give some consideration, some forethought to what you're going to say when you come into the presence of God. Your words should be few. You don't have a lot to say to him. He has a lot to say to you. So everything that you do, 
the words that you are going to be speaking should be carefully considered. Again, like you were in the presence of your judge. Like you were granted an audience in the Oval Office. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Keep silence. I think that's a bit of hyperbole, but it does mean give careful consideration to what you say and what you do. Spontaneity is fine. In most cases, planning is better when you're dealing with God. I think for the ministers, that means that you carefully choose your hymns. You carefully think through your prayers, express, um, so that you give expression in your prayers to that which is biblically, biblically and theologically accurate. In, a, in, a, in the Reformed tradition, we, we don't use written prayers for the most part. But we do talk about, and historically we've talked about, studied prayer and conceived prayer. That was the language used uh, centuries ago. You know, so in other words, if you're leading the people in prayer, you're going to give some consideration. You're going to be thinking about scriptural support and theological accuracy. Even in your prayers, you're not just going to say the first thing that comes into your mind. Spurgeon said to his students in his fabulous book, Lectures to My Students, the first thing out of the mouths of most people is mere froth. He's right. He's right. The thing that comes off the top of our head typically is not worth giving, expressing. So there should be some, some thought given to these things. Uh, the sermon should be historically and grammatically accurate. If you're expounding God's word, you should be carefully considering the meaning of the text on which you are going to be preaching. What about worshipers? I think the worshipers should prepare, prepare before they come. You might start the night before, certainly the morning of. There would be some preparation that goes on before you come into the place of worship. You would arrive early, get settled in the pew, take a few moments to meditate and, and pray and prepare your heart. Why would you do all that? Because coram Deo, we are coming into the presence of God. And so there ought to be a certain sobriety and solemnity and reverence. We come into the presence of God carefully. Then secondly, uh, we would uh, worship and serve, serve and worship God with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book of Proverbs tells us that over and over again. Uh, some of the commentators will say such things as, the fear of God is synonymous in the Old Testament with true religion. Fear should be distinguished from terror on the one hand and bland appreciation on the other hand. So the kind of language that we have in connection with the service and worship of God is such language as trembling and such language as bowing and kneeling and being prostrate. So that helps us to understand what's meant by reverence, doesn't it? When we see this kind of language, fear, trembling, bowing, kneeling, prostration. Isaiah 66, 2 says that God dwells with those who are humble and contrite of heart and who tremble at his word. Psalm 69, 9 calls us to tremble before him all the earth. And one of my favorite passages, uh, Psalm 211, rejoice with trembling. 
So we'll say more about joy in a few minutes. But isn't that interesting? There's not a, this dichotomy, this gap between joy and fear. When we rejoice, we do it carefully. We do it with trembling. We do it with fear, a certain element of fear, not slavish fear, or what the older uh, theologians would call servile fear, but with filial fear, family fear, the kind of fear that a good father engenders in his children. So we go on. What does the Bible say about posture in worship? Well, it does, it does give consideration with bodily posture. And when we worship God, the attitude of our hearts should be compatible with the posture that's indicated. Does God care about posture? I don't, I don't think he does. Well, up to a certain point, I don't think he does. I don't think you should slouch in the presence of God. I think that when we pray, I don't think you should be leaning back in the pew with your arms, you know, uh, 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 you know, resting on the back of the pew and you slouching before God. So while I want to say I don't think that uh, posture is a major consideration, I think it's something. And more importantly, the point I'm trying to make is that I think that there's to be an attitude of the heart that corresponds with the with kneeling and prostration and bowing. So whether or not the posture is the critical thing or not, we'll set that aside. The critical thing, the critical thing, is that the attitude of the heart be one that is compatible with and expressive of that bodily posture. So when you are bowing and kneeling and lying prostrate before God, one is taking up a posture that is reverential. You would grant that, I would think. So what is the attitude of heart that goes with that? Well, let's just look at some of these passages. Psalm 5-7, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. What's it mean to be reverent? It means to, it means to fear God. How do you express the fear of God? Well, bowing. When you fear God, you bow. Whether you bow physically or bow in your heart, the point, of the point is that there's a certain fear that is, it gives expression that is given expression in our worship with our attitude of reverence. Uh, Psalm 95, 6, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. When we come to worship, what ought to be the attitude of the heart? That of the one who is bowing and the one that is kneeling. That's a Psalm 95, 6, Exodus 34, 8. Moses, when he's given that, that seminal revelation, of the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounds in loving kindness and truth and so forth and so on. It says, Moses made haste to bow low to the earth in the presence of that, that revelation of the glory of God. Ezra 9 verses 5 and 6, uh, there Ezra as he begins to uh, confess the sins of his people, is on his knees and then ultimately he's, he is he's prostrate. Well, somebody might want to say, well, is that that's the Old Testament? Uh, that's different, right? Uh, isn't there a change in when you come into the New Testament? Um, no, I, I don't believe there is a change. The piety of the Old Testament is the piety of the New Testament. Uh, so, for example, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill, kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, fear him. 
The fear of God is an element that we bring into our service and worship of God. Uh, Romans 3.18 says of the ungodly, there is no fear of God before them in their eyes. And the ungodly are the, are the people that don't fear God. That's a way to characterize or summarize their whole attitude of God and what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it? They don't fear him. Uh, Acts 9.31, the godly walk in the fear of the Lord. It is a kind of motivation for their walk. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 7.1, we are perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Pursuing holiness, perfecting holiness, walking more perfectly in obedience, in other words, because the fear of God is an element of it, an element of what motivates us. So I think men, most of us have the love of God as a motivation. That certainly is the supreme motivation. That would be the first motivation. I want to please him. I want to honor him. I want to glorify him. Um, why? Because of what he's done for me out of love for him. Yes, that would be the, the ultimate and primary motivation. Does that exclude fear? Does love exclude a proper kind of reverential fear of God? The answer has to be no. No, there's an element of this. Not of servile fear, but of filial fear. Fear of the Father, a good Father. Uh, Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another in the what? The fear of the Lord. First uh, Peter uh, 1, uh, verse 17. Uh, th this brings together a couple of, of thoughts that, that belong together. Uh, there, beginning of verse 16, 1 Peter 1, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear. Why? You call him as father. You mean because he's my father? I'm, 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 there's to be an element of fear in my relationship with God? Yes, there is. Reverential fear. You call him father. That's a great privilege. What kind of a father? Well, like a Middle Eastern father for whom there is great reverence. If you call upon him as father, who does what? Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds in light of the fact that he is your father and in light of the fact that he is your judge, there's a certain element of fear that should be characteristic of the way that you conduct yourself as a Christian. Your service and worship should have this element of reverential fear. Uh, what about tr trembling and prostration and bowing? Well, Philippians 2.12. Uh, there the Apostle Paul says, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. <laughs> they are together. This is the New Testament. Not uh, incompatible with the thought that God is love. Not incompatible with the fact that God is my Father. I'm to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. That's repeated four times in the New Testament. Fear and trembling are presented as characteristic of the, of the attitude with which the people of God serve God. Um, Revelation 1.17, John is given a vision of the ascended Christ. And his response is uh, what? Does he say, oh, that's really neat. That's really special. Uh, no, it says he fell at his feet as though he were dead. So, so overwhelming was the vision of the ascended Christ. Uh, Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knees before the Father. Philippians 2, 
10 and 11, it says that it's at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's the, the vision of, of worship, of bowing. It's a reverential worship. Uh, so will it do uh, for our worship? Let me, let me use some of the language that's, uh, that's used. Friendly, light, informal, uh, contrary to anything that would be serious or seen as uh, solemn. Will it do for us to approach uh, God with that kind of light and lively uh, uh, attitude? Uh, my answer would be, I don't think so. Why? Because it's not reverent. Because it's missing the note of reverence. There's no fear of God. Uh, there's, no, there's no deference and respect when we come at, uh, at, to, into the presence of God so, so informally and uh, with so, lo so little uh, consideration for his majesty and so little in the way of humility and humbling of ourselves before him. Uh, well, what about joy? Is, is, is this reverence, is it compatible with joy? Well, I just read, uh, again, one of my favorite verses in this respect, we're to rejoice with trembling. Uh, Psalm 211 and Psalm 112, one, delight and the fear of God are right there side by side, each other. Revelation 4.10 and then again 5.14, the 24 elders fall down on their faces worshiping God. And I think that we can assume that the elders in heaven worshiping God have joy in doing it. And yet they're prostrate. How about the wise men? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So the, the exceeding great joy and the kneeling, the bowing, the reverence, the awe, the wonder, uh, these are not incompatible and indeed uh, they are exactly the opposite. So when we have weddings, I go through a little spiel uh, every time in which I try to make some distinctions. So I'll start this way. I say there's a difference between the celebration at the ballpark and the celebration at the awards banquet later. All right, at the ballpark, during the game, touchdown is scored. What does everybody do? Everybody goes nuts, right? They jump up and down, they scream and shout, they clap, they cheer. Uh, it's very exuberant, it's, 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 it's very expressive, it's, uh, it's very emotional. Uh, but then at the awards banquet, uh, a month and a half later, is that, is that also a time of celebration and joy? Well, it is. It is a time of celebration and joy. Is it expressed in the same way? No, it's expressed quite differently. They say, so-and-so gets the, uh, the most valuable player award, and what does everybody do? They, they clap there, they're polite clapping, and, uh, you know, a little cheer, but it's much more subdued. They're not jumping up on top of their chairs and throwing their arms in the air and screaming and shouting. No, it's a, it's a much more subdued. It's still a celebration. It's still joy, but it's being expressed very differently. All right, what about, uh, what about weddings? Well, there is a difference between the wedding, the reception, 
and the honeymoon. Different venues, different ways of expressing one's joy at the event. Are, are all three of those joyful? They sure are. Now, the wedding's a joyful occasion, but, but there's a solemnity to it. Why? Because it's a worship service. Because a serious thing is taking place there. Vows are being exchanged. That's serious business. This is a lifetime commitment. If you're getting married as a Christian, it's a lifetime commitment. Once you're in, you can't get out in any kind of a God-pleasing way, right? So that means this, this is a weighty decision. This is not the kind of decision that's being made by your secular uh, unbelieving friends out there. Well, we're going to give it a try. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. No, this is life commitment. It doesn't work out. You can't punt. You got to work through it. That makes it a whole different kind of decision when I know it's for life. And so there's a serious nature to the wedding itself. How about the reception? The wedding is a joyful occasion. We have beautiful music, and we have an exposition of Scripture, and we're praying, and it's, it's a joyful occasion to see this, this uh, young man and this woman coming together in holy matrimony. All right, then the reception. Different kind of celebration. There may be, uh, it, there may be a band. There may be other instrumentalists of some sort. There's music that's going on. There may be dancing that's going on. There's food that's being served. I mean, it's a joyful occasion. It's a feast. It's a festival. Is it joyful? Yes. It's a different kind of joy, though. It's being expressed differently. Is that not right? Then what about the honeymoon? There's stuff that goes on there that doesn't belong at the reception and doesn't belong in the worship service. Joyful? Yes. Exciting? Yes. But it's, it belongs in one context and not in another. There's a difference between those three events, those three venues, and those differences need to be understood. So I come back to worship. You need to understand what, what we are doing in a worship service. Uh, I've heard people say, well, why don't we celebrate like we do at the ball game? And the, re the answer is, this is not a ballpark. To put it quite simply, this is not a ballpark, this is not a ball game. This is a different kind of event. And so the way you express joy at a ball game, celebrating an athletic accomplishment, is a different thing than what we do when we gather for worship. When we are drawing near to God into the presence of the true and the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's serious business. So we're not frivolous about that. We're not superficial about that. Uh, there's a weightiness to it. Uh, there's a seriousness about it. Is, does, is there joy? Yeah, there's joy, but it's a deeper kind of joy. I think when we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty to the tune Nicaea, I think it's one of the most joyful things we do, but it's weighty, right? There's substance and weight and solemnity in the rejoicing, I think that when the choir is saying, thanks be to, to thee, I'm going to say, Handel wrote it, I don't care what Jacob says. <laughs> All right? Hey, whatever, it's attributed to Handel. It's absolutely, overwhelmingly beautiful, but it is weighty. It, it, it literally brings tears to my eyes when I hear that being sung. I just feel like that at that moment, God is getting the glory of which he deserves. I feel that way every Easter when the, 
we have everyone going to the balcony and sing the hallelujah chorus. I just feel like it's one of those moments in this world, on this earth, when at that moment, God is getting the kind of glory he's going to get in heaven, which he deserves and of which he is worthy. And finally, there's a moment when it happens. So there's a, there's a weightiness to the proper service and worship of God so that fear and joy, they're, they're compatible there's a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. I started to quote from this morning John Newton's great hymn. And I love that I think it's the third or the fourth stanza, Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I think the world does pity us. They look at us and they say, what? What a sad, pitiful existence those Christians have. They don't do any of the fun, exciting, pleasurable things that we do. Let the world deride or pity. They don't have any idea what they're talking about. But I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his pomp, boasted pomp and show. But the Christian, solid joys and lasting treasure None but Zion's children know. That's that joy that's inexpressible. And yeah, there's some emotional restraint. We don't, we don't put on ostentatious displays of emotion when we worship. We don't stand on street corners when we pray, drawing attention to ourselves so that we might hear when God speaks, when his word is being read and when it's being preached, and so that we might... Uh, focus on the message of the hymns and psalms that we sing and join in the prayers that are being prayed. So, yes, we are quiet. Our, our words are, are few. We're choosing our words carefully. Why? Because we're in Coram Deo, the presence of God. Here's what Arthur Pink says about our reverence for God. Whensoever we make mention of him before whom the seraphim veil their faces, we ought seriously and solemnly to ponder his infinite majesty and glory and bow our hearts in deepest prostration before that name. O oh, my reader, form the habit of solemnly considering whose name it is you are about to utter that it is the name of him who is present with you, hearing you pronounce it, who is jealous of his honor, and who will dreadfully avenge himself upon those who have slighted him. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, let us do all to the glory and honor of the name of God as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that uh, we, at times, have misused your name. We have not given it the honor that it deserves. We have taken your name in vain. We repent of that, and, O oh Lord, pray that from this time forward that we would always worship and serve you spiritually and reverently from the heart and with godly fear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.